You know, um, this may surprise some of you, but this is actually a new experience for me. Um, since New Day started, other than two years ago when I took a break, but I've kind of, I've been here every year since 2004, and so when I've preached, I've been part of the week. This is the first time where I've not been here, I arrived here this morning, and, um, and I'm leaving tonight, and I'm just here, just here to serve you this evening. It's been a new experience, because previously, I would have been around for the days running up, getting a feel of what's going on, and you know, absorbing it all. But instead I've arrived and I'm saying to people, so what's been going on? People have been talking about first night, Lou did this, Lou did that, and response, great. And then people start talking about last night, and they start talking about this, this guy I've not really heard of much before called uh, TJ Colio. Sorry, have I got that right? Okay, oh, got that right. So oh, TJ said this, TJ said that. I'm thinking, oh, it sounds great, this is really encouraging. And then TJ says this, TJ says that. And I'm like, yeah, cool, that's great. And then, and then TJ's really down with the youth. And you see the way he talks, he just really knows how to connect. And, and he looks really cool. And it's just, kind of, it's just going on, I'm going, oh, no. Oh, because I, I've turned up, I've got my, I've got my son's hand-me-downs Nike Air Max on. I'm not even joking. They were a bit baggy when I first started wearing them, but they've kind of found the shape of my feet now. But, um, and uh, so bad. It's true. Second hand. I've got to move still, though. That's the main thing. But um, while, we're, while we're on the subject of Max, forget TJ. I'm talking about TK. You know what I'm saying? Let's call me TK. So TK was amazing last night. TK Max. Most expensive thing I've got on is my haircut, and that's Eddie the Barber in Kentish Town. Eddie, big up Eddie. But as the conversations went on, my, my confidence, I was encouraged first one year, and I thought, oh no, like, what am I doing here? Like, you should have quit while you're ahead, you know. You're 46, listen, like, just leave it, leave it to the youngers. So maybe, all I'm going to ask is that you just give me one last shot to share God's word with you. Is that okay? One last shot. One last shot. One last shot. I'm not going to try and be cool because I've forgotten how to be cool. I'm not sure that I ever was. Um, but what I do want to do is uh, share a message. I feel that the Holy Spirit has been brewing in my heart, to be honest with you, for a few months now. And it's a real privilege and a real honor to be able to share that with you. I'm looking forward to our love, opening up the Bible with you guys. We've been on some amazing journeys over the years in the scriptures, and we want to do that again tonight. So I'm really looking forward to doing that with you. I'm going to share with you one of the strangest stories in the Bible. We're going to read it together in just a moment. Uh, some very, very strange stories in the Bible. Growing up, I loved strange stories. One of my favorite books was a little ladybird book called Greek Myths and Legends. Loved it. Stranger, the better. Anything on the Loch Ness Monster, I was there. Yeti, then I got into UFOs. Stranger, I loved all of that. Because, and the reason why was because there was something in it that was kind of pulling me beyond the everyday. I found something in those stories that, that, that pulled me beyond just the normal and I was drawn to it. I was drawn to the paranormal things, and I, I loved all of that. But what I always found was, was the more I got into these various things, that they always turned out to be a dead end. As I got into them, and I got to the end of it, you just something in your soul, you just go, I'm still hungry. <laughs> it was kind of captivating initially, but my soul was still hungry. And then similarly to Jake, interestingly, he probably gave my life to Jesus about seven times, and then it finally stuck when I was 18. Um, I don't know what's going on there, but it was interesting hearing him say that. And then the Holy Spirit brought the scriptures alive. And there are stories in the Bible that are extremely strange and extremely unusual and miraculous. But when you really understand them, 
They fill your soul. They fill your soul. So we're going we're gonna to pick up a story. I'm going to give you a little bit of the backstory first. Then we're going to re- read it out loud together. It's going to come up on the screen in a moment. We're going to read it out loud together. It's important to read Scripture together. The Bible says don't neglect publicly reading Scripture. We're going to do that together. But a little bit of a backstory. is a man called Jacob. A few things to say about him. Number one, he's a schemer. This man is not a nice man. He's not a good man, but he's chosen by God. God loves him, but he's a, he's a nasty piece of work. He's selfish. He's devious. He goes about things the wrong way. Um, number two, he's a, he's, a, he's a wanted man. He's basically stitched his brother up and his brother wants to kill him and his brother's a lot meaner and a lot tougher uh, than he is. So he's kind of hunted is how, we, how he's looking. He's alone, completely alone. Um, he's, he's had to leave home because of his brother being after him. He's completely alone in a strange land, doesn't know anyone at all, and he's homeless. Okay, that's the backstory. He's a schemer. He's hunted. He's alone and he's homeless. And so we're going to pick up the story. If you've got a Bible with you and you want to turn to it and follow it, it's Genesis chapter 28. And we're going to read from the uh, English Standard Version um, in Genesis uh, chapter 28. The reason why there's different versions of the Bible is because the Bible is not originally written in English, it's written in other languages. And so um, translators over the years, they would, they would put it into our language to help us to understand it and would sometimes phrase things in different ways. But all of the, all the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, these things, that it, the meaning is exactly the same, and obviously so, but the phraseology is slightly different. So we're going to look at this strange story which gives us one of the most important messages in the Bible. Let us read together, shall we? Genesis chapter 28. Let's read out loud together. Do your best. If you can't pronounce some of the names, just sort of go quiet and mime it or something, and then pick up again when you can... Read the words, okay? Let's go together. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. 
Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for this story. I pray that as I preach it now, that you would help me to speak in a way that you want me to speak. I pray for all those that are listening. Holy Spirit, you will come upon them and help them to hear what you are saying, that their hearts would be captured by the truth of your word. We pray that Jesus may be glorified through everything I say. And we all said together, Amen. So let's just unpack this story just a moment because it's a strange, strange story. Number one, it's strange that you would choose a stone for a pillow. Am I right? Did you, did you notice that? I'm sure he had some clothes or a robe or, or blanket with him. The man chose a stone for a pillow. I don't know if they were just tougher in those days or what, but he's in this wilderness. He finds a stone. I'm going to lay my head on that. That's a strange thing straight away, but the stone is really important. Don't forget the stone. As he's sleeping, he has this dream and he sees angels descending and angels ascending. It's a dream where he kind of has a vision, if you like, of spiritual reality. Somehow he stumbled upon somewhere that in some strange way is spiritually significant. It's important. It's not what he expected. He said, I didn't know it. God's here and I didn't know it. Sometimes you can walk into a room or you can walk into a situation and God is there, but you don't know it. You literally don't know it until God opens your eyes. Until God, by his Holy Spirit, taps you on the shoulder, you cannot realize it. You can be in the same room as someone who's meeting powerfully with the Holy Spirit and say, what's going on there? And you can feel like you're in another country from them because you can't sense God at all. You see, Jacob had no idea God was there. When he falls asleep, the Holy Spirit begins to reveal some things to him. He sees angels coming down and moving up, and he thinks this is an extraordinary thing. He wakes up amazed. God has made promises to him in his sleep. God has come to this schema and made promises to him. and says, I'm going to bring you back home. Yes, you're hunted. Yes, you're wanted. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you safely. I'm going to give you this land. He makes all these promises to him. And when Jacob wakes up, he's so taken aback by what he's experienced. He says, I'm going to change the name of this place from Luz, which, let's be honest, is a pretty lousy name for a place anyway. Um, but I'm going to change it from Luz to Bethel. Bethel means house of God. This is the house of God. God somehow lives here. We're going to change it from Bethel. And then notice this. He does one other strange thing, and then I'm going to take you, through, take you through the meaning of what's going on here. He takes the stone that he used as a pillow, as a pillar, as a pillow, sets up a pillar, a memorial pillar, puts the stone on top, pours oil on it, and calls the stone Bethel. So he says this place is called house of God. And then he says, I'm going to call this stone the house of God. Now, take that and park it there. Park the story there. Because what I'm going to introduce you to now is one of the most important things of the whole Bible. If you're 12, you can get this. If you're 18, you can get this. Stay with me here. Because I'm going to take you through something quite extraordinary. What a lot of people don't realize about the story of creation in the book of Genesis is that although it is an account of creation, and it truly is an account of creation, it's also operating on a few levels, whereby what you may not realize is this, is that when God created the Garden of Eden, he was creating a very, very special place in the middle of a world that at that point was wild. 
The Bible is clear that initially there was a wildness about the world and then God creates this garden called Eden and he creates it and it's a special place. It's a place of rest. It's a place of paradise. It's a place of beauty. It's a place of order. And then the final thing he does is that he creates a man and a woman who are made in his image and he places them in this garden to look after it. Now what you probably don't know is this. In the ancient world, when they used to create temples, the final thing you would do as the last act of making a temple is that you would create an image of your God. You would take a stone or a piece of wood and you would make an image of the particular God that you worshipped and you would place it inside the temple and that was like that, that was the final moment whereby essentially what you were trying to say was, was that this God now lives here. That's what was going on. In the account of Genesis, what is going on with this Garden of Eden is on the final moment, what the Lord does is that he creates a man and a woman in his image and he places them in the garden and what he's saying is is that you being here in my image basically represents that this is where I dwell. This is my dwelling place. This is the house of God. This is, my, this is a temple. A temple is the same as a house of God. A house of God is a temple. That's what's going on in creation. And when God says to them, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth, he's not just saying, I want you to have lots of children and fill the earth, although he is saying that. He's saying, those of you made in my image, I want you to multiply and I want you to plant gardens all around the earth because my plan is that this planet becomes a temple. I want to dwell in this whole planet. I want this whole planet, this whole of this part of creation filled with my glory. That's the purpose of God there you see in the story. But we get it, Adam and Eve get it wrong. If you're familiar with the story, they they go their own way. They, They kick against the plan and in the end God casts them out. God says you can't be in here anymore. This is my house but you can't be in it. Now, do you remember what was in the center of this temple, of this garden? There were two trees. One was called the tree of life. The other was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They could access the tree of life. They couldn't access the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so in the center of the garden, this this sanctuary, there's this most holy area right in the middle, and there's a sense in it of access, tree of life, no access, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yes, but no. They disobey God. They eat from the wrong tree. They eat from, they they break the rules. God casts them out. He says, "You, you don't care about trusting me. You don't trust me. You're doing your own thing. You're gonna have to go. You're no longer allowed in here anymore. Fast forward a few hundred years, maybe even slightly longer than that, just over a thousand or so. A man called Moses leads the people of Israel out of a country of Egypt where they were slaves. He leads them out through the Red Sea. He leads them into the wilderness. And then God says, I want you to build me a house in the wilderness. And so we have what we call the tabernacle, which just means tent. And in the tabernacle, what happens is, is that it's a specially built place. And then within it, in the middle of it, you've got this area called the Holy of Holies. And in the middle of it, you've got this ark, this wooden box, and it represents the presence of God. You've got a sanctuary in the midst of this temple. You've got this most holy area right there in the middle of it where God's presence dwells. But you see, it's a place where you, you kind of can go in, but you can't. In fact, only one person once a year can go in, the high priest, because God is holy and because we are not holy like God is holy. We, we do things wrong. You understand. You've heard about it these last few nights. You know it in your own heart and in your own conscience. We make mistakes. We get it wrong. We are rebellious in our heart. We want to do our own thing. And so there's this, our relationship with God is out of kilter. So one man, one chosen man, once a year can go in and offer sacrifices so the people can be forgiven but it's kind of like you can come in but the majority of you can't come in and even the one that can only once a year and it's like yes but it's a huge no 
But the whole idea with the temple is that's the place where heaven meets earth. That's the place where God dwells. That's the place which is supposed to be the center point for the blessing of the whole of creation. Fast forward a few more hundred years, a man called Solomon, King Solomon, he builds God a temple. Right in the middle, you've got another holy of holies. Where the priests can go once a year, all the same old thing. Yes, but no. Adam and Eve get cast out of that temple in Eden. In the tabernacle, well, the tabernacle story, the tent, it all goes kind of horribly wrong. The, the people of God sin, they mess up. Even the priests are sinful. The tabernacle gets carted off to the enemy. And in the end, no one quite knows what ends up with the Ark of the Covenant. And there's plenty of conspiracy theories and YouTube videos trying to tell us where it is today. Then you've got the temple, Solomon's temple. In the end, people keep sinning against God, even God's people. And God sends in the Babylonians and they destroy the whole city and they raise the temple to the ground. Temple, house of God, heaven meets earth, God dwells there, the whole of the creation is going to be blessed, but it goes horribly wrong. With the Garden of Eden, with the tabernacle, and with the temple. But I want to tell you something today, and it's this. God is sovereign, and that means this, that God's plan A never has to become plan B. God never, ever, ever has to move his first plan out of the way because it's all gone wrong. God knows exactly what he is doing. And I want to put a question to you, and it's this. What if every one of those temples, the Garden of Eden, the Tabernacle, the Temple, what if actually in the sovereign purposes of God, they were just foreshadowings? They were just, they were just signposts pointing to something far greater, pointing to something way beyond what they were. Do you know what I mean by like a foreshadowing? Let me give you an example of a foreshadowing. It's a bad one, sorry. Any of you ever just broken up from school for your school summer holidays, six weeks of bliss ahead of you? You walk into town, you walk past a shop window, and there's a huge poster that says what on it? Back to school. I used to hate that poster. You've just broken up, you've got six weeks of lines and PlayStation and all that ahead of you. And you walk into town and you think, I'm going to buy some nice things. I'm going to buy some good stuff. Huge, huge poster of kids looking happy in new uniform, holding up their ruler and their compass and their big fat glasses on. And you go, I don't want to know. I don't want to, I don't want to read this poster. Why? Because it's pointing me somewhere in the future that I don't want to think about. That poster is saying, sorry, dude, there's something inevitable coming your way in six weeks' time. You're back. It's a foreshadowing. It's a bad foreshadowing. What if the garden, the tabernacle, the temple were a foreshadowing of something else? You see, in the Gospel of John, something extraordinary happens. It opens with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's only one other Bible book that starts with the words in the beginning. That's the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What John is trying to do is take us back to Genesis... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is talking about Jesus, and what he's saying is, I want you to know that the introduction of Jesus, Jesus coming, we're going back to the second creation, we're taking it back, we're going to, the creation is going to be renewed in this man, we've got a brand new thing happening. A few verses later it says this, is that it says, the Word became flesh, the Son of God, alive forever, became flesh, became a man, and tabernacled among us. He encamped among us. He made his tent among us. So we've got Genesis with the Garden of Eden in the beginning. 
We've got John saying straight away then, then he says, and you know what? He says, he tabernacled among us. He's trying to give us clues. He's trying to give us hints. And then Jesus calls one of his first disciples and, his disciple, and, his, and he says to one of his disciples, I saw you earlier sitting under the tree and you know, you're, an, you're, you're, you're a truly honest man. And the man goes, wow, you're amazing. And Jesus says, you haven't seen anything yet. Listen to this. He says, you're going to see, you're going to see the heavens open and angels descending on and ascending from the Son of Man. You're going to see angels coming down on me and going up on me. I am Bethel. I am the house of God. I am the place where heaven meets earth. I am the place where God dwells. I am the place, I am the one that will bless and bring glory to every part of the planet. A few verses later, Jesus clears out the temple and the the leaders say to him, who gives you authority to do this? And he says, well, you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. They said, but this temple took 46 years to build. How can you rebuild it in three days? And John then puts, but he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus... He's the true Garden of Eden. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the house of God. Jesus is the place where heaven meets earth. Jesus is the place where God dwells. Jesus is the place out of whom the whole of creation will be blessed. Now let me just take you somewhere because we're not done yet. It goes, we're going to go one step further in it, so you've got to stay with me. We're not done yet. But first, I need to just talk about Jesus as the house of God for a few minutes. How long have I got? Okay, we're roughly on track. Jesus is the house of God. You need to understand the importance of the life of Jesus. We often go straight to the cross. You mustn't go straight to the cross. You mustn't do that. Because in the life of Jesus, what we have is the only human being to perfectly fulfill the law of God. So we have the only human being who is counted as righteous by his own righteousness, by the fact that he completely, perfectly obeyed God. If Jesus, Jesus had, that was essential for Jesus to walk through every kind of trial and pressure that me and you experience and yet not sin, so that by the time he gets to the cross, he, has, he is considered righteous. He can be a genuine sacrifice for sins, not just a lamb or a goat that kind of points to something, but a genuine sacrifice for sins, which means that the sins that we have committed which lead to death can genuinely be absorbed in him which means we can genuinely be forgiven and counted righteous and then genuinely live with God in peace okay so it's absolutely essential that you look at the life of Jesus and you wonder at his devotion to the father you wonder at his willingness to go through incredible pressure and temptation and yet stand the course and yet continue to be devoted because he knew that the whole of the purposes of God hung on him you want to talk about pressure Let's talk about pressure. Let's talk about the life of Jesus. Where one false move, one false move, and there is no sacrifice for sins. You want to think about pressure, you want to think about not buckling under the strain, you tell me you're under pressure, and you may well be, I'll tell you, there is one who knows about pressure. There is one who knows what it's like. There is one who is touched by the pressure you face and can sympathize with you. He has been there and more. And he, get, and, and he, get, he does all of that, why? So that he can die. 
He does all of that so that he can go through the most awful death you could ever imagine and absorb our darkness, absorb, absorb the, 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 the wrath uh, uh, expressed in God at our sin, absorb our very sins, take into himself the complete fullness of darkness. In fact, so much so the Bible says he became sin. He takes all the filth, all the shame, all the guilt, all the, all the, all the not everything that's dark, he absorbs in himself. He takes it in himself. So much saving the sky goes dark. He, and, but you know what? He's, he's not killed. He lays down his life. He lays down his life. He has the authority to lay down his life and he has the authority to take it up again. That's exactly what he did. Three days later, he rose again. And that was a huge demonstration that death couldn't hold him, that the sin that he became, none of it was his own, that he truly is the son of God. The Bible says the resurrection is a powerful declaration. This really is the son of God. He appears to his disciples and then he ascends to be with the father and he's seated at the right hand of the father right now today until all of his enemies are placed under his feet. Jesus is utterly victorious as the house of God. But there's another stage to this and you've got to follow me now. This is ever so important. There's something extraordinary about people who will make themselves smaller so that other people uh, can look better. There's something amazing about it. It's so common and so boring to be around people who are constantly trying to make themselves look bigger, trying to make themselves look better, trying to promote themselves. I, I, I horrify, embarrass, and bore myself with the amount of times I do it. I horrify, embarrass, and bore myself. Sometimes I hear myself speaking, thinking that was totally unnecessary. You're just trying to make yourself look impressive to that person. There's something incredibly impressive about people who they know who they are, and yet they, they kind of reduce themselves, not, not to be falsely humble, but to make room for others. They, 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 they step out of the limelight to, to move others forward. Jesus is the house of God. Let's go back to the story of Jacob. The stone. He anoints this stone and he says, you're Bethel as well. You're the house of God. You see, because the Bible doesn't just teach that Jesus is the house of God. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the cornerstone of the house of God. Now, the cornerstone is the stone you put in first. Because the cornerstone in the old days, you put that stone in, it determines the shape. It determines the, how the rest of the building looks. And so, it's, and so Jesus goes in absolutely first. He is absolutely first place in everything. He's completely supreme in everything and in every way. And when it comes to the house of God, the temple, otherwise known as the church, he goes in as the cornerstone. And then the Bible says this, he's a living stone chosen by God, rejected by men. He's a living stone, he's the cornerstone, and then it says this to us, me and you, if you're in Christ, it says, you then, as living stones, are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Jesus says, I am fully, yeah, it is amazing. <laughs> Jesus says... You've got to get this because this is, this will, when you get it, it blows your mind. Jesus says, I am the house of God. I, I'm perfectly full and sufficient enough to completely be the house of God. There's no lack in him. Okay? He's utterly, utterly abundant and full. But he says, I'm going to become the cornerstone. And I want, I want, this, I want the house of God. This is the plan of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We want the house of God to be built up with living stones. People who are joined together, built on Jesus joins together, and that, that community called the church, that is going to be the place where heaven meets earth. That is going to be the place where God dwells permanently. 
that is going to be the, the place where the whole of creation is going to be blessed through it. Brothers and sisters, the big news tonight is if, if you are in Christ, if you trust and believe in him, you've given your heart to him, you've given your life to him, some of you did years ago, some of you did this morning, some of you maybe have not yet done that. But as you put your trust in this amazing stone, this cornerstone, Jesus, as you stand on him, as you build on him, you say, Jesus, I want only you to be my foundation, you become a living stone. You are joined into that temple. Now this is so important because the church, the temple, the house of God is hugely underrated and hugely misunderstood and hugely under attack. People do not understand the glory, the wonder of the church. God has one plan and it's the church. God has one plan and it's people. It's people who have chosen to turn to him and love him and be built together. It's not just, if, if, if 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 you're not meaningfully part of the church, if you're not meaningfully connected to the church, you're like a living stone, a precious stone just sitting on the pavement or just sitting in the road. You're still precious, but you're not fulfilling your destiny. Where are you? You are called to be connected to the people of God. Jesus and me is not sufficient. Jesus and me won't do. Jesus is saying, I'm building a house. I'm building a house of God. I'm the cornerstone. Build on me and build close and next to one another. The plan of God is local expressions of churches all around every city, town and village. And there are a community of people filled with the Holy Spirit where other people can encounter heaven. They themselves, but others on the outside, longing, hungry for spiritual reality. They know that church there, you go there, it's a genuine spiritual encounter. It's not nonsense, it's not dark, it's not going to ruin your life. You go there, you will meet with the living God because that's the house of God right there. God dwells there. You know that verse in Genesis says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the day. I've always understood that as at some point in the cool of the day, God arrived in Eden. God sort of arrived, called the day and they go for a walk. I don't think that's right. I think God lived there. I think he lived there. Because a temple is the permanent dwelling place of God. He lives in his church. In this place tonight here, this becomes church. Why? Because of the living stones built together. But God's, this is a special moment. God's plan in the day-to-day is local churches. Local communities of believers built together, committed to one another. I want to say a few things on it practically. And then we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to gallop in and do extraordinary things in our hearts as we commit. I want to say a few things on the church. You need to understand, all of you youth, what your youth leaders are about. They are longing for you to love Jesus and they're longing for you to love the church. Because they know that to love Jesus and not love the church will leave you... Not, will not leave you fulfilled in your purpose in life. There is a community of believers that God is wanting to knit you into. And I tell you, it's a battle to commit to church. It's a battle to forgive one another in the church when we hurt each other. It's a battle to really connect in. I know it. I'm a human too. I get it. I understand. Sometimes, you know, there's moments in churches where I look around and I think, there's not a load of people here that I would probably naturally be with if I didn't know Jesus. But I love Jesus and they love Jesus and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to know them. I'm going to get to love them and learn how to serve them. And there's something so precious about that because it means in that community, Jesus is the one who is the focus. Jesus is the one who is the talking point. Jesus is the main love song. Jesus gets the glory and the attention. Jesus, you see, there's enough in Jesus. There's not enough in like in a particular genre of music. You might want to talk about it for a while, but there's not enough in it. 
There's not enough in certain subcultures, this or that, or football teams, they're all fine and good things. There's not enough in them. There's only enough in Jesus to really take us to the place where we need to be. The Bible says in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you've got a fascination for the, for the wonderful, for the glorious, it'll only be satisfied in Jesus. I'll tell you that now. The Holy Spirit will teach you about Jesus. He will show you, he will reveal Jesus to you and will satisfy your soul if you will let him. But the Holy Spirit's desire is to do that in your own soul and also to do that in community, to use other brothers and sisters around you to feed into your life, to bless you, to serve alongside you. So you go on mission and go on adventure together with Jesus. Understand why it's a battle. It's a battle because when it works, it's so powerful. It's opposed because when we get it, we really move forward. Another word for the church is the body of Christ. Imagine, imagine a body working as it should. I won't demonstrate now, but I'm actually a brilliant dancer, but I won't show you that now. But um, imagine, imagine, imagine that if you can, or if not, imagine someone who you do know is a good dancer, moving through this stage with elegance and beauty and wonder. You know, when people understand their place in the body of Christ and they connect and they humble themselves and they build on Jesus and they say, I'm committed to you. I'm gonna, we're going to do this thing together. Something happens when they find their place in the body. The church begins to look elegant. People don't look on and say, what's that clumsy thing? They go, wow, that is an awesome thing. And sometimes they're too scared to join. Other times they run and jump in, but they see that is an awesome thing right there. That's as awesome as an army. There's something so splendid going on there. It's beautiful. Church of Jesus Christ, understand this. Understand this. Live in stone. Live in stone. If you're a believer in Jesus, just stop for a moment and just say to yourself, I'm a living stone. I'm a living stone. I'm being built into the house of God. You know, the Bible is clear that God cannot and will not live in a house built by human hands. Can't contain him. Nothing can contain him. But he chooses to dwell in his concentrated presence in the hearts of in the inside. Not just the hearts, actually. No, no. In people, in their very bodies. The Bible says your body is a temple of God. That's why it's a big deal what you do with your body, because it's a temple of God. If you've become a believer, if you put your trust in Jesus, it's a temple of God. So you are a temple in and of yourself, and you're also a living stone connected to other living stones to make this glorious image of a temple. It's beautiful. I'm going to end with this. I'm going to end with this. Jesus was a schemer. He wasn't. Jacob was a schemer. <laughs> Delete that. PA man. Delete that. I'm going, guys. I'm done. I'm done. I've just totally blown it. I'm sorry. I'll see you later. <laughs> Do you know, I don't know if any of you were here, but about, about eight years ago, I was preaching on Jesus. And I was, I was preaching the little children coming to Jesus. Who remembers this? It's so embarrassing. Still cringe years later. And I was going to say, oh, they're all sitting on his lap and they're probably playing with his eyebrows, yeah? And I said, they were sitting on his eyebrows. I literally said in a sermon, who remembers that? That was so embarrassing. This one was worse. This one wasn't embarrassing. You just heard a heresy, right? A heresy is like false doctrine. It's like what not to believe, okay? When I said Jesus was a schemer, that was wrong. What was it? Great, we can carry on now. Let me put that straight. Right, roll with me now, because this is like a really good bit of the sermon. It's the end bit, five minutes left. It's a good bit, so roll with me now. Jacob was a schemer. True, true. That's a true, that's a true statement. He lays his head on the stone... 
He lays his head on Jesus. The Bible talks later on about the, the disciple John leaning back at the Last Supper and laying his head on the, on the chest of Jesus. Why is he lying on a stone? See what it represents. He's a schemer. He lies his head on Jesus and God speaks to him and makes promises to him. Maybe you're a schemer. You're a tricky person. And you know it in your heart. You lie. You're devious. When no one's looking, you do stuff you're ashamed of. You say, I'm going to get my own way in life, no matter what. If you will lie your head on Jesus, if you will build on Jesus the cornerstone, I'll tell you what, he will make you, that God will make you such promises because he loves Jesus so much. Because he's so impressed with Jesus. If you come into Jesus, he will make you such promises. You will no longer have to scheme, be devious, tricky, lie, push yourself forward. You can trust him. Hear that. Hear that. Number two. Number two, Jacob was alone. Jacob was alone. But he laid his head on Jesus, in a sense. Maybe you're here, you feel so alone. There's an emptiness, a gaping emptiness inside. We're all born with that. You try to fill it with this, try to fill it with that. Let me tell you, only one person can fill that hole in your soul, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus, because he made you, and you're made to know him. And if you will, if you will stand on Jesus, the cornerstone today, you're going to put your trust in I, I tell you, you will never be alone again. He promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He loves you so much. It's extraordinary. He loves you so much. Don't ask me to give you a reason. Don't say, why would he love me? I've got no answer. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not say because you've got great face or because, well, you know, I'm not going to say that. Right? I don't know why he loves you. I don't know why he loves me. It must be because he's perfect love. It's not about you. It's about him. Okay? It's about him. It's not about you. It's so releasing. It's so releasing when you realize he loves me because he is love. You go, okay, fine. Then love me, Lord. Not because of something in me. He was alone, but you'll never be alone. You can feel the beating heart of Jesus. He cares about you. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, you know you belong to Jesus. He brings assurance. I belong. I'm, I, I am not alone. I will never be alone. It's beautiful. Number three. Number three. He had an enemy on his back. He had an enemy on his back. His brother wanted to kill him. He was hunted. He was hunted. Puts his head on Jesus. The promise comes, I'm going to bring you back safe. God does bring him back safe years later and he's reconciled to his brother. The, the attack that was planned against him never happens. He's not killed. He's protected by God. And what I'm saying is this, if you put your trust in Jesus, I'm not promising you a problem-free life. I'm not saying hardship will never come your way. What I am saying is this, is that you will be ultimately and eternally rescued and no one and nothing in the whole of creation will ever be able to separate you from the covenant promised love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Okay? It's a promise. It's a promise. Okay? Understand that. Believe that. Understand that. And then he was homeless. He was homeless. Jesus said, Jesus himself was homeless. Don't you know that? Jesus was homeless. He said, I've got nowhere to lay my head. Jesus willingly embraced homelessness on his mission and his ministry so that he might bring us home. One of my most favorite ways of describing becoming a Christian is coming home. 
is coming home. That garden that was originally created, we know somehow we're made for that. When things are broken, it it breaks us because we know this isn't what it's made for. I tell you what, coming to Jesus is coming home. It's coming home. Now the Holy Spirit, great. You guys have been enjoying this, brilliant. What we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to sing about the Lord being the cornerstone. I want us to just, you probably know the song if you've been around church at all. It's an easy song. But we're going to just focus on that, okay? And when we do that, as we do that, now you've got some content from the Bible. You understand what that means, okay? And after we've sung that song, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just give opportunity across this tent for those of you, you, you just know that you've not, you've not, you've not been built on him. Uh, you've not had two feet on Jesus. You may have no feet, maybe you had one feet, one foot, you know. But it's time you say, do you know what? I, he's the house of God. He's become the cornerstone. I, I want to build on him. And I'm going to give you an opportunity, really just to, just to declare your devotion to Jesus. We'll, we'll talk you through that, Okay. And then after we've done that, also what I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to pray a prayer whereby we're going to just invite the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to just say this about the Holy Spirit because sometimes people get a bit, they kind of see the Holy Spirit as sort of some sort of separate kind of deal. Let me explain. God is Father, Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So really the Holy Spirit comes to bring the presence of the Father and of the Son into our hearts. And there's, 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 there's lots of things the Holy Spirit does, but two of the main things that I want us to think about before we pray in this way is number one, he brings assurance that we really are children of God. Those of us who have put our trust in Christ, he brings us assurance, I'm a child of God. And that is so important that you meet God in that way, that heaven meets earth, that you go, ah, oh, I've met him. The Bible says that our faith shouldn't rest on persuasive words of wisdom that people have said. Our, our faith should rest on the power of God, that we have met him in our heart. And we know, and no one can take away from us, that he's real and that he loves me and that I'm part of his family. And the second thing is for equipping. The Holy Spirit comes to equip us. Because remember the other thing about the temple, it's there for the blessing of the whole of creation. And you know, you as a living stone, part of a church, not some Christian off by yourself, but connected, saying, no, I'm going to commit to the church. I'm going to commit to being a living stone. I'm going to follow Jake's example. I'm going to get, when the the people gather, I'm going to gather. I'm going to gather there early. I'm going to serve. I'm going to, I'm going to, I see now, this is, this is the plan of God for the whole earth. And it might not always look as glorious as that, but I get what it, I understand now the church, it's the temple, it's the house of God, it's where God has decided to make his dwelling. I want to give myself to God's house. Part of giving myself to God is giving myself to his house. And in doing that, I'm giving myself for the blessing of creation. That we're going to shine out the glorious love and beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ to a dying and broken world. I'm committed to that. The Holy Spirit will give you the power to do that. You can't do that by yourself. He knows that. He will give you the power to do that. So what I'm going to ask us to do is with reverence in our heart, wonder at this great Jesus, this house of God, this cornerstone. What I'm going to ask us to do is that we're going to just spend a bit of time praising him, just singing and wondering and glorying in who he is as our cornerstone. Okay, so why don't we just stand to our feet with our eyes on him. Let's just look to Jesus.
Christ alone.